Before we read the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, let us go to God in prayer at this moment. Heavenly Father, what a great day to be alive in your creation on the day that you have designed for us to come as a body of believers to worship you and also to hear from your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life. I pray that we will see afresh in your word the glory of Christ and him crucified as our Lord and Savior, that seeing him in this written page, that we may be able to live by your grace. So we pray that your Holy Spirit may empower us through your word. Bless your word to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 4, and Paul is about to complete, um, is about to complete his um, address to the church in Corinth about the rivalry, about the uh, divisiveness that had arisen within this church uh, because of their unbiblical view of leadership. And he begins uh, this chapter in verse 1. This is God's very own authoritative and inerrant word. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would, that, and would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. 
When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my, my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Sadly, we, we live in a time where many church leaders' understanding of the nature and mission of Christian leadership is increasingly shaped by either modernism or postmodernism or by a popular culture rather than by apostolic biblical teaching. Our churches today are becoming less and less apostolic. So therefore, we're in a uh, profound and desperate need of, a, of, a, of an apostolic reformation. Thankfully, God has left us his word to enable us to foster an apostolic reformation of the church in our own time. This evening, let us take a look at the first main thing that can empower us in this apostolic reformation of the church. And the first point I would make in this sermon, I will make three main points. And this first main point, I will follow up with a few thoughts. But the first main point we will see in verse, uh, verses 1 and 2, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So the first thing that the apostle teaches us is that an apostolic church is a Bible-based teaching church centered on Christ. It's a Bible-based teaching church centered on Christ. And he says this because an apostolic church sees and accepts the biblical apostles as servants of Christ. And these apostles were chosen for the office, for this particular office, as we read in these uh, verses. And Paul describes himself as a servant. Some believe that the word originally meant under rower, one who rowed the oars in the lower levels of a large uh, ship. But by Paul's time, it was uh, often associated with uh, manual labor, uh, who was an assistant uh, of, of a lowly kind to, to someone in, a, in an official position. And in first century Greek culture, as in some uh, cultures in our own time, uh, people were um, identified um, as to their social status or social class, rather, 
by looking at their hands and fingernails. So the, uh, the Greeks in particular looked down on people who were uh, manual laborers. And here we have Paul saying, consider us as servants of Christ. Consider us as manual laborers of Christ. And as you know, Paul was actually a tent maker. And here he's identifying himself with the lower social class of his own time in the eyes of the Greeks. But an apostolic church not only sees and accepts the biblical apostles as servants of Christ, an apostolic church sees and accepts uh, the biblical apostles as faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. And notice in verse 2, uh, they were, uh, Paul uh, seems to contradict himself here in using the word stewards. Um, the biblical, the, the Greek word stewards, oikonomos, and um, uh, typically a steward had um, one of the highest rank of, ranking of a servant of a wealthy landowner who was in charge of the entire estate in his master's absence. And uh, Paul is, is combining these two thoughts together in a very paradoxical manner. Uh, together, uh, as one commentator has stated, together both words compare Paul and Apollos and Peter and all their peers to servants answerable primarily to God, but with authority over their charges. And notice that they're stewards of the mysteries of God. And Paul repeats himself here. He first mentioned about this in chapter 2 and verse 7, about those, uh, the mysteries. And this refers to those aspects of the gospel that was once hidden uh, uh, once hidden, the aspects of the gospel of Christ and him crucified that was once hidden but is now being revealed through the apostles and through this office of apostleship and is being centered on the cross of Christ. But notice he describes himself, Paul describes himself also as a faithful steward, as one who had been given a trust. And this is confirmed to us in passages such as 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul gives thanks for his calling. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So Paul and the other apostles were entrusted with, uh, this, uh, faithful, uh, with the stewardship of the mysteries of God. They were entrusted with the task of preaching every aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified that had not been made known in previous, re- in previous redemptive history. So the task involved the full and clear implications of Christ and him crucified on behalf of sinners like you and like me. An apostolic church is not only a church that sees and accepts the biblical apostles as servants and faithful stewards of the mysteries of the gospel, but it also does not. It also does not go beyond what is written. Look at verse 6 in this passage. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is 
written. It is common to find Paul use this expression in his uh, epistles. Uh, It is, or what is written, and almost always it refers to the Old Testament scripture. But significantly, prior to this chapter 4, Paul has already used this this phrase about five or six uh, times. One commentator uh, suggests that with this in mind, especially in verse 6, uh, it should be best understood as instructing the Corinthians not to tra- transgress the exhortations found in and constructed from the scriptures to boast exclusively on the Lord and not in human leaders and to recognize the unity of the people of God. So Paul's point is that um, to go beyond this witness of scripture would be to boast in human wisdom unwittingly supposing that the Corinthians are smarter and stronger than God. And we find this confirmed, this thought, not to go beyond what is written in Ephesians chapter 3, as Paul writes in verse, first, uh, beginning in verse 2 and ending in verse 5, you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Today's challenge we face is... um, given by an example of a particular movement um, by the name of, it takes the name of the New Apostolic Reformation. And it came about within the last 10, 15 years. And this is a worldwide network lead, uh, led by so-called apostles. And you can join this organization and, and, and provide fees and, and the idea is to keep track of all these apostles worldwide. Because in their belief, there should be a new apostolic reformation, new apostles in the church. In fact, a few years ago, in fact, a few years ago, a group of these leaders came to this very city. Lakeland, to ordain a potential apostle. But this is what one of the things that this particular apostle preached here in this city. He told his followers that God had instructed him in a vision. God had instructed him not to preach about Jesus but instead to stress the supernatural. And this is the conversation he has uh, with God, supposedly, he says. He says, you know, uh, I told the Lord, why can't I just move in healing and forget talking about all that other stuff? Well, he said, because, because, Todd, you've got to get the people to believe in the angel. I said, God, why do I want people to believe in the angel? Isn't it about getting the people to believe in Jesus? He said, 
The people already believe in Jesus, but the church doesn't believe in the supernatural. We're reminded by Paul in chapter 3, verse 11, that no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul adds to this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, where he describes the church as God's household. And he adds in that chapter that the apostles are part of that foundation and that Christ himself is the chief cornerstone in that foundation. And as you know, the chief cornerstone of any building is the crucial stone of the foundation. But the apostle Paul goes on to add that he is part, or the apostles are part of that foundation you see, foundation which is important to the integrity of the structure, determines its size, its strength. But what do we find the apostolic church? What do we find the apostolic church in the scriptures doing? We find them in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is to say that an apostolic church does not go beyond apostolic writings, you see. There may be someone here still on the fence about this issue. Are you faithful to what was written by the apostles? Are you faithful to what was written by the apostles, you see. Some may take a guy has not established a foundation built on a revolving theater stage which generates and produces and premieres a new set of apostles before each generation. You see, this is what Apostle Paul is getting at in this chapter. So let us look at our second main point in this passage. An an apostolic church has servant leaders who live the way of the cross. An apostolic church has several servant leaders who live the way of the cross. Now, I have a few things to say about this uh, second main point. Look at verses 7 and 8. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule Uh, with you. The way of the cross strips leaders of their self-sufficiency, as in verse 7. All things come from God. 
How can you boast in something that you have received that did not originate in you? The way of the cross strips leaders of their self-sufficiency. Notice in verse uh, 8, already you have all you want. And the, the thought in the Greek here is that they have gorged themselves, so to speak. And their guts, their spiritual guts are fully satisfied. And they have all that they need. You see? But the way of the cross strips leaders of their self-sufficiency, as you will notice in a few moments. Also, the way of the cross clashes. Look in verse 9. The way of the cross clashes with human uh, triumphalism. Beginning in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we... because we have become spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. The imagery here is of a military conquest, you see. And when a king would uh, uh, conquer a, a territory or a land, uh, they would celebrate in a, a parade, in a procession. And those at... Uh, at it was, it was ranked according to social status. So, so the, the ones who were conquered at the beginning of this procession were people of nobility. And it went down to the lower classes, see? And Paul is saying, we have been viewed in this manner. God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all. As slaves, as the lower social class at the end of this uh, procession, you see. But the, because the way of the cross clashes with human triumphalism. And so what is triumphalism? What is triumphalism? How am I using this particular term? It's the belief that the over and the consummate victories that we will experience only in the age to come, are already not only available to us now, but it sort of collapses into this present age. It, it, it renders this present evil age, uh, it renders us immune to the effects of, the, uh, of this present evil age. For example, Mike, uh, for example, there is a, uh, another apostolic movement and this particular uh, so-called apostle uh, received a prophecy back in the 80s. And he's currently um, implementing this so-called uh, prophecy uh, vision that he received. And it concerns the book of Revelation. And he believes that he's been called to prepare uh, the forerunners of Christ's second coming just like John the Baptist was a forerunner of the first coming of Christ. And he, he has come to prepare and to train uh, these forerunners. And these forerunners will be endowed with power, which will be demonstrated in signs and wonders. And this, uh, it is described as a revolution, as an eschatological revolution, a forerunner eschatology in these last days. And they will conquer the evil empire of the Antichrist with signs and wonders and miracles. See? 
This is an example of triumphalism. This is an example of triumphalism. But Paul teaches us a different way. Paul teaches us the way of the cross. He states here that leaders are called to suffer here. And in keeping with the military imagery, in keeping with the military imagery here, he continues in verse 12. And we labor, uh, working with our hands, when we revile, we bless, when we persecute it, we endure, when slander, we entreat, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, a refuse of all uh, things. Verse 11, to the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. You see? We're sentenced to death, he says in verse 9, like men sentenced to death. We have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men here. And Paul is like a modern, is not like a modern day general, you see, where uh, in the theater of war and modern uh, warfare, uh, uh, a general can uh, conduct a war from a different country, you see. And Paul is illustrating for us the way of the cross that leaders are the first ones in this spiritual battle. You see? And this is what God is doing through the apostles. He's calling them to suffer for the cause of Christ, for the, his cause. Another thing we learn from this passage is that servant leaders also admonish uh, the flock. Notice in verses 14 and 15, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Lastly, the third point, the Apostle Paul points out here, the third major point in this passage that we can glean from is that an apostolic church has servant leaders who encourage and promote among God's people the way of the cross. Notice again in verses 12 and 14 through 21. In particular, verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. And at this point, you may, you may be thinking, uh, this is quite a defeatist attitude here. It looks like there's no victory at all. Uh, um, that the gospel brings. Uh, the way of the cross looks like a, a defeatist uh, attitude. It, it leads us uh, to a call to defeatism here. But Paul does not lead us to defeatism. He's preparing servant leaders in the church and urging these leaders to live the way of the cross, to live cross-driven Lives, And he does this by saying, be imitators of me. And he also repeats this in chapter, chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Notice back in verse 6, verse six in the opening of this chapter. Here, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us. 
not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Again, he says in verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. And in verse 17, he says, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every uh, church. So in what way is he asking them to imitate the apostles and in turn to imitate Christ? In what way? Is he asking to the same degree that Christ and the other apostles suffered? Is that what he's asking or demanding from this particular church? Notice his response in verses 12 to 13. And we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, when we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Notice that there's an echo here. There's an echo here from the Sermon on the Mount. The way of the cross that Paul is paving for the Corinthian church and for us is the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what Peter says also in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. This is an example of the way of the cross. Do you struggle in your Christian life as people may consider it? you uh, to be evil or to revile you because of Christ? Do we respond by blessing them? Do you struggle with that? I know I have across the years. In particular, I remember when I first became a believer in Philadelphia, uh, everyone is basically a secularist uh, in Philadelphia. And the challenges that that comes with they try to shame you because you're a believer in Christ. You see? They shame you as a believer in Christ. And they revile you. And the struggle was to bless them in those circumstances. The Apostle Paul goes on to Pave the way of Christ, the way of the cross, rather, for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. There, he says, uh, excuse me, verses 8 to 10, he says uh, in that particular chapter, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. That's the way he is paving the way for us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So Paul here is paving the way of the cross because he's living this in his own life. There was a commentator who spoke about the dangers of triumphalism the danger of um, uh, taking the book of Hebrews where it says that uh, Christ ushered in the powers of the, of, of the coming age when he arrived. And we experience that power through the gospel and that he's given us new life. He's given us a, 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 a new life through the work and power of the Holy Spirit, you see. 
And we're tasting that. The coming of the, the next age, the coming of, of, the, of, of the next age, the triumphalism decides to do is to experience all the blessings and the fullness of the coming age. You see, that's what triumphalism is, to experience all that in the here and now. So one commentator spoke about the danger of viewing our present life in Christ in the here and now, in this present evil age as we walk as pilgrims in this uh, present evil age. But at the same time, we have uh, one foot in this present evil age and we have another foot in the coming age as we have experienced the powers of new birth, eternal life in Christ. He says the danger of triumphalism is that it ignores the cross. And when the hour of trial whether it's sin, failure, loss of popularity, shame and abuse comes, we, like the disciples, flee for cover instead of sharing in Christ's suffering. The triumphalism of theology is a glory in our day can be discerned in much of today's popular Christian music. Here, the realities of life are replaced with platitudes and sentimentalism, a far cry from the emotional and moving words of the psalmist that we find in the scriptures. So Paul is teaching us to live the way of the cross with one foot here in this present evil age and another foot in the coming age. You see, Paul and his heavenly vision, as you compare his vision with the ones I have already stated, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, he states, so to keep me from becoming conceited, as a result of this revelatory vision that he has seen, this heavenly vision. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being, becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's the way of the cross, you see. In our weakness, God's grace comes to us to strengthen us, you see. And he goes on to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, you see. You struggle in boasting gladly of your weaknesses, And Paul goes on to say, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When illness strikes, and some of you may uh, uh, have chronic illnesses, or when illness comes uh, acutely, do we struggle with accepting those weaknesses in our lives, those challenges in our lives? Do we struggle with that? Do we struggle to walk in the way of the cross at those particular moments? Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then... I am strong. 
See, this is the answer to the triumphalistic spirit with these movements, these new apostolic reformation movements, you see. The way of the cross. Also, as we finish up this last point, an apostolic church has servant leaders who encourage and promote among God's people the way of the cross. These leaders thus do so by speaking in power, either with a rod or with love. Notice in verses 20 to 21. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And you see Paul's wisdom that at times you need to come with a rod. You need to come speaking uh, truth, uh, sometimes in a very, not harsh, but in a uh, confident way, in a way that confronts lovingly, that does not shy away in bringing correction, you see. And he says this so that God's reigns, that, so that God can reign in power, you see. God can reign in power. You see, uh, the Apostle Paul presents himself as a fatherly figure here in these verses, and it demonstrates the authority that he was entrusted with, the apostolic authority, you see. The way of the cross he presents as a way to even discipline the church. If you have not come to know the way of the cross and you're not a believer, I urge you to come to faith in Christ, to believe that Christ died for your sins, that he, in his weakness, in his moment of weakness, in his moment where he absorbs the full wrath of God on your behalf, come to him by faith. Come to him by faith. If you've been a Christian for a long time or if you're a new Christian, come to him by faith to live the way of the cross. He calls us through the apostolic word, through the apostolic written word of God to live cross-driven lives. A commentator in these would be the closing words, a commentator in speaking about this last section of this particular ch chapter, Dr. Car uh, Donald Carson states these words. He says, In short, Christian leaders uh, dare not overlook their responsibility to lead the people of God in living that is in conformity with the gospel. That is why Paul urges people to live a life worthy of the calling they have received. It is why Paul prays that believers may live a life worthy of the Lord, the crucified Messiah, and may please him in every way. And if the people of God dig in their heels in disobedience, there may come a time for Christian leaders to admonish, to rebuke, and ultimately to discipline firmly those who take the name of Christ but do not care to follow him. 
do not care to follow the way of the cross. The sterner steps must never be taken hastily or lightly, but sometimes they must be taken. That is part of the responsibility of Christian leadership. May God empower us by his grace to live the way of the cross. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And the people of God say, Amen.